We continue this morning in this season of Lent, this season in the, the church year where we are leading up to Easter, this season of preparation, uh, where we're going to get to Easter as we, uh, we you know, announced this morning all the, the fun, festive Easter stuff going on, and we're still sitting in this time, though, where we're preparing, we're preparing for that journey to the cross, because the cross comes before Easter. And we do say, it's, it's always interesting uh, talking to confirmation students and talking to others, and we, we talk to uh, young people and say that, that we call what happens on the cross good. It seems very backwards to think about the crucifixion of someone, this horrible, terrible death as good, but we know what's on the back end of it, and so we celebrate what Christ did on our behalf, the sacrifice Christ made for us. We're in this season of Lent leading up to the celebration of Christmas, and we've been sitting with the topic of lament, of crying out to God, the biblical basis for looking at those who cry out to God for various circumstances, various situations. Uh, We started at the beginning with, with crying out to God for the neediest in our world who lack basic resources needed for life like water crying out to God, God, what, what can we do? What is going on in our world? And it, somehow that is tied uh, actually to today's topic where we're crying out for these, uh, as we prayed today, as you heard from Psalm 46, these, these images of, of that the, the creation is somehow broken, that God's good created world is somehow broken and doesn't work as it's supposed to. It doesn't always cooperate And we see that in these natural disasters that happen that break our hearts because there's loss of life because the earth itself is devastated and it causes us to cry out. And so we we sit with this phrase this morning, which comes from Romans 8. I want to encourage you, uh, if you do have your Bible with you, if you use the app on your phone, to open to Romans chapter 8. When we're looking at this text, and Paul uses this interesting phrase in the text. He says, creation is groaning. Creation groans. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever looked at the earth, the actual earth, not just humanity, but the rest of the earth, and thought about it groaning? That, that it's like the creation is in pain. Have you thought about that at all? Are you able to, to go there? I think that it's been interesting as I studied this text and studied this topic and did some reading, the idea that we, we have become so separated from the earth. You know, there used to be a time where people were so connected to the ground, where they depended on it. In fact, we were just at a Fuller Seminary this last week, a small group of us uh, down at Fuller Seminary for this, uh, this cohort we're a part of called Growing Young, where we're looking at how can we help young people stay connected to faith. And there was a gentleman who was talking there, and he gave the example. He actually, his uh, family grew up here in Simi Valley and, and took care of one of the, uh, the orange orchards, the citrus orchards here in Simi, Simi Valley. He called it Simi Valley from back in the day. But he was talking about how his dad was so connected to the earth and his grandfather, they were connected to the earth and connected to the soil and knew what it meant that, that if, the, if they didn't tend to the earth and tend to the soil, the trees would not produce fruit and that was their livelihood, that these trees would produce fruit. And they were so connected to the earth and the soil. And so I wonder when I think of this phrase, creation groans, if, if we've distanced ourselves too much for a need to be connected to the soil and to the, to the earth, to the dust, that we, we don't notice creation groaning 
But that doesn't maybe resonate with us. I, I have to confess that that doesn't resonate with me on a daily basis. It's, it's only those moments where you get out into the wilderness or, or you're sitting in the ocean and you go, oh, this, take it all in. God created all of this. Wow. And you feel that connection. At least that's true for me. So I wonder for you, as you hear this phrase, as you think about it this morning, what, what, what images come to mind or, or what have we lost in terms of our connection to the earth and this idea that creation is groaning. What we're going to see this morning, and I, and I want to warn you because uh, Jay made a joke this morning. He's like, you're talking about natural disasters. He's like, you're just going to, you know, it's going to be a sermon on reduce, reuse, recycle, and global warming and all those really easy, you know, topics that don't divide us and start. No. This is about looking at what the Bible says between the connection. And here, here's the key thing. The Bible makes a claim that there is a connection between these three relationships, the relationship between uh, God, humanity, and creation, that there is a relationship between those things. The Bible makes that claim. So I want to look at Romans 8. I want to walk through this a little bit, and then uh, what does this mean for us? And I want to specifically say from the outset that I am not a scientist, so I'm not trying to say like, well, this proves how all of these things happen in our world. No, we're going to what we have in the text. We're going to that place of talking about this, this relationship I just mentioned between God, humanity, and all the other created things. I do want to remind us before we move into the text in Romans 8, that humanity is part of the created things. We're part of creation. Sometimes we start to think of ourselves, and this is maybe therein lies the problem. We start to think of ourselves as so elevated and so high and so apart from the rest of creation that we, we find it hard to understand the relationship and how we're connected to the rest of creation. And at the beginning, when God created all things, we were connected. There's a mutuality, a dependence on one another, the created things, the created world, and humanity and God. And we know that that was broken, and we're going to talk about that as we go through the text. I want to start in uh, Romans 8, verse 19, just to see what does Paul say about the creation? What is going on with the creation? In 8.19, he says, The creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation is waiting in eager expectation. Again, have you thought of all of the creation around us? The hills, the mountains, the skies, the seas, the birds, the animals, waiting for redemption. We think a lot about humanity, human beings, me, you, our family, our friends, and redemption, salvation, reconciliation with God. But have you thought about all of creation eagerly waiting to be redeemed? Even the hills around us, the skies, the seas, the birds, the fish. All of it being redeemed, dare I say, the snakes, the spiders. I don't maybe not. Maybe we don't want to have hope for that. But all of creation eagerly anticipating the day when the children of God will be revealed. This is that kind of, uh, in the church, what we talk about end times language. 
That day when Jesus will come back will finally reveal who is in Christ, who is written in the book of life, who has that relationship with God, who is included in this final glorious day when all things are made new. And that's the interesting phrase to hang on to as you think about all of this. In Revelation it says, behold, I'm making all things new. That's what God says. It's not I'm making all new things. See, sometimes we get that backwards, and what happens is Christians especially will talk about the earth as in like, who cares? It's all going to burn up anyway. And we have forgotten that the end picture is, behold, I'm making all things new. And Paul is saying that the creation is eagerly waiting, expecting this day when all things will be made new. The creation itself is waiting for redemption. He continues laying out his argument in verse 20. He says, The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. Creation didn't do anything to deserve this frustrated state of being, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, there's a couple of ways to interpret that scripture right there in verse 20. There's a couple of ways you could say that that we were the ones who subjected it to frustration when Adam and Eve first sinned and broke the relationship with God and broke the relationship with all other things. Or you could actually say as we look into uh, Genesis 3 where this happens, that it's possible that it's actually something that because of the breaking of relationships that, that, that God actually in some way subjects the creation to frustration. I've got to tell you this morning, if you're looking for easy answers of why do terrible mudslides and hurricanes and fires and things like that happen, did God do it or did humans do it? What is the cause of it? You're not going to find an easy answer. It's all somehow tied up together. And the Bible makes this clear. It's all together. Do human beings have an impact on this world? Yes. Is God in control? Yes. The creation, though, Paul says, is subjected to frustration. It's not cooperating. It's not working like it's supposed to be. There's something that is broken in the the very fabric of how God created all things, and we know that to be true because we live here on this planet. And we look at the things that have happened in this last year, and we think, God, if you created all things good, why do these things happen? Because just like we are broken... As humanity, we are part of that creation that's all been broken. It's all been broken. It's all been broken. Just sit there. There's going to get some hope, but just sit with that truth, that reality that it's all been broken. It's not all working like it's supposed to. It's been subjected to frustration. And at the end of verse 20, going into verse 21, Paul says, it's in hope has been subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself, again, wrap your mind around this. This is Paul using redemptive language for creation. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought in the freedom and glory of the children of God. Again, I ask of you, have you thought of, have you thought of creation being redeemed? Creation needing to be freed, just like you and I need to be freed, from the brokenness that we experience in this world. Because, again, what has been severed 
what has been broken, what has been messed up from its original intent, what is out of whack is that relational piece. It was all created to be in relationship, God, humanity, the creation, and it's experienced brokenness. And so we look around and we go, oh, things aren't working like they're supposed to. It is indeed broken. And then finally, in verse 22, we get to this kind of uh, text or phrase that, that really holds it all together for us this morning. Paul says in verse 22 that we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present times. Paul uses this interesting metaphor that the creation is groaning like a woman in labor. Creation is crying out. Again, can you even picture this? Can you allow yourself to go there? You're like, no, 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 no. Humans are the ones. Humans are at the top. We're the ones crying out in need of redemption. We're the ones that need salvation. Yes, true. But can you, can you allow yourself to go there that all creation is groaning crying out for final redemption, the putting back together of all that is wrong and off and out of whack as it was intended in the beginning. So if you can't go there yet, let's walk through a little bit of more in Scripture and because what people are arguing as I've been doing this, because I, I thought this was one I really want to get into some scholarship on this. People were really going down into that this is consistent, that Paul grabs these ideas. They're not his own ideas. They're not brand new ideas. That he grabs these from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament. Paul is actually going back to the beginning and saying, let's look at how, how we understand our relationship with creation, our relationship with God, this relational peace. Let's go back to the beginning of it all. Let's go back to the way it was supposed to be and see how human beings, their relationship to the earth and their relationship to God are all tied together. How they're all tied together so we can see what it means that creation is groaning. And essentially, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where the, the event that we have come to call the fall happens. So if you're relatively new to church and, and you're kind of going, what are these, these churchy things that we say? What we call in the church the first time human beings disobey God, we call the fall of humanity. That human beings fell away from this relationship, this tight relationship they had with God, where they're walking together in the garden, and now all of a sudden they're hiding from God. They're afraid of God. They're ashamed of who they are. And, and there's a broken relationship that is experienced. And, and God says to Adam, as a result, as a consequence of what has happened, the severing of this relationship. He says to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. And he says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And then later on it says, You'll return to the ground... Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you will return. See, there's a relationship. You've been taken from the ground. You are, you are made of stuff of the earth. 
and you're going to go back there. You're connected, but that connection, that relationship God is saying is now as a consequence of what has happened, this disobedience, the breaking of all relationships, even humanity's relationship to the earth is broken. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so I think it's at this point where there's a tension that's being built between the relationships in all of the world. And so that's why I say we have to go all the way back to the beginning to see that, that the sin of humanity, humanity's inability to follow God's rules, follow God's laws, be in relationship with God, humanity's failure here actually breaks more relationships than just humanity and God. There's a brokenness we experience in even humanity's relationship to the earth. It says the earth won't always cooperate now. You're going to work and work and work to get food, and, and sometimes the earth is going to produce thorns and thistles because the relationship is broken. And we see that the rest of the Old Testament carries this through. I, I stumbled upon this really fascinating article by a professor at Judson College named Lori Breton. She says that the Hebrew Scriptures make frequent reference to the mourning of creation. She says, due either to human sin, God's judgment, or a combination of the two. That you can go through the Hebrew Scriptures. You can see the prophecy. When, when the prophets are saying to the people of Israel, turn back to God, oftentimes what they will do is they'll say, the land, the land is acting this way. You're not producing crops. You're experiencing these things on the earth because of your sin and God's judgment. Now, I have to admit that for, for many Christians, that might make us very uncomfortable because that really, as I said at the beginning, I'm not talking about a scientific basis for this this morning, for why does the earth not cooperate? Why do we get these things to happen? The Bible, though, if we're talking about a biblical basis, the Bible seems to suggest, according to this professor who looked through numerous texts, seems to suggest that the earth is not cooperating the things that happen in the world that, that make us go, why God? Because of this broken relationship between humanity, creation, and God. So if you're asking yourself, do human beings have an impact on this earth? The answer is yes. Does God have an impact on this earth? The answer is yes. Is it so simple as to say, well, these are the things we did and this is what we have to change? I don't know. But emphatically, our actions do have an impact on the earth. Our actions have an impact on our relationship to the ground, on our relationship to God, and it's all tied together. It's all tied together. She specifically points to some texts. I want to share one with you in Isaiah 24. Uh, if you're interested in more of a, th this, if you like to like really dig down deep into studies and into this topic in particular, I can point you to this article. It's a long kind of journal seminary type reading article, but I, if, you, if you love to dig into that stuff, have at it. Uh, she looks at nine or ten texts from the Old Testament that really dig down into this that show that there is a relationship between our actions, God's judgment, and the earth. One of those that she points to is Isaiah chapter 24. 
In Isaiah chapter 24, it says this, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It's going to be the same for priest as for people, master as for servant, mistress as for her servant, for seller or for buyer, for borrower, for lender, for debtor, as for creditor. He's saying that, that when the Lord does this, Isaiah is saying, when this thing happens to the earth, it's going to happen for all people across the board. Nobody's going to escape It's not like just the poor people will experience this or just the rich people. All people will experience this because of this relationship that's broken. He says, The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. You hear that language that the earth is going to not work, not cooperate. And it's something that Isaiah is saying that that God is doing. And then the next verse, Isaiah 24, 5 says, because, well, the words because isn't in there, but he he makes this jump. He says, the Lord, the earth, the earth is defiled by its people. This is the connection Isaiah is making. The earth is is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. This is similar language that we saw in Genesis 3. That because the people have broken this relationship with God, because there's a brokenness in humanity, the earth is defiled by its people. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. We see just in this one example, again, this tension that because of the broken relationships between God and humanity, there is also a broken relationship between humanity and the earth. And so again, if we go back to that question of of, do human beings have an impact on what goes on in our world? Or is it God that's having an impact on our world? It's all tied up together. There is no simplistic answer. As people of faith, we understand that it's all tied up together. God created all things. He said all things are good. And yet, in the brokenness of our world and in the brokenness of relationships, we have what we have today. And it's not just human to human or human to God, but it also has to do with the earth. The same professor that I mentioned, uh, Breton, She offers this comment. She says, Note how the corruption or the decay of the earth is attributed both to an act of God's judgment and as a result of human sinning. While these may appear to be alternative events to many of us, sometimes we separate these things out, the Hebrew deeds-consequence concept holds them together. Sinners suffer the consequences of their actions. They reap what they sow which also might be considered the concomitant judgment of God. Now, I know we live in a time where people are increasingly uncomfortable with talking about God's judgment. Even Christians in some churches and some traditions have become uncomfortable with talking about God's judgment. But at a base level, the reality is that we have to admit, come to an understanding, as she's suggesting here, that our actions have consequences. Hopefully, that's not news to you. I did youth ministry long enough that I know that that's news to some people. I will never forget conversations with students who are like, 
I am doing this and it's only affecting me. Why is everybody on my back? Why is everybody bugging me? It's just me making this choice. And having to say to them, so why have I, have I had to talk to your parents, your siblings, people at school who know about how this is affecting everything else in your life? Yes, you may be making a personal choice. You're saying, I'm only doing this to me. It's just me. But our actions affect our relationships. And I think what, what, we're, what we're looking at today is it, it doesn't just, our actions don't just affect our relationships person to person. Our actions also affect our relationship with God and with the whole created world. That when our actions are, are out of sync with the way God created things, it not only has an impact on our relationship with God, our relationship with others, but with the whole earth. Can you wrap your mind around that? Or is that, is that too big a stretch for you this morning? It's taken me some time to wrap my mind around that, so I'm not asking you to just make that jump, but I'm asking you to consider that this is the biblical argument that the Bible puts forward that our actions impact the earth. But at the end, what I, I want to sit with at the end is this image that Paul gave us. Because the biblical lament, when it comes to lament, what we've been trying to hold out and remember to remind ourselves is that those who lament in the Bible, they don't just complain to God or say, God, why is it this way? And shake their fist and walk away from the relationship. Their, their complaints, their laments are because they're staying in the relationship with God. So if you notice, as Paul says, creation is groaning. He also offers up a word of hope. You see, that word of hope in, the, in our text for today is in that metaphor. Is in that metaphor that the creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. It's hidden in the metaphor, right? Because the lament is God, creation is groaning. It's not working like it's supposed to. Look at all the things we see going on around us. Why, God? Why do these things happen? But the metaphor, as in the pains of childbirth, gives us hope because we know at the end of childbirth, we find new life. That's why I'm assuming I can't speak for the women in the room. I'm not going to ever try to do that. I've learned that. I'm assuming that's why women go through the pains of childbirth. is because you know on the other side of that, there's new life. The joy of holding that baby. And so Paul, I don't know if Paul really understood this either as a, a first century dude. But for some reason, he looks and he says, the creation is groaning, is crying out. Nothing is as it was intended to be, and yet there is hope that there's new life, redemption, that, that pointing to the future of all things will be made new. Paul knows that, and he has hope for that. And so that's where this text leads us this morning, is to that question of what do we do then as people of faith? What do we do to have hope? hope for the future. I was thinking about that this week. Uh, I love this. Uh, there's a book called Grounded. It's written by an author named Diana Butler Bass. 
And she she looks at the the future hope. She says, the book of Revelation is not a heavenly escape story. I like that phrase. I'll just say that. Instead, it tells the opposite tale. We don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. Have you read the book of Revelation? Talking about the new Jerusalem coming down? That it comes to us. All things made new. The end of history is not destruction. Rather, its end is sacred restoration. That the Bible points to a day when all things will be restored. It's sacred restoration. See, the end story is God's redemption of all things. I'm making all things new. But until then, living in the here and now, living in the broken world we do, what are we to make of all of this? What is our role? See, in Genesis 2, the, the, the man, Adam, the first man was put in the garden. He was given the task of caring and working for the earth. And then we saw, as we mentioned earlier in Genesis 3, that was broken by the fall, by humanity's disobedience. I have often thought that as people of faith, as people who have said yes to Jesus, have the Spirit of God living inside of us, that our job now is to live as if we're almost living back in Genesis 2. To try to discover for ourselves what would it look like to know that the world is broken, know that me, I, myself, my relationships are broken, but to know that God is trying to put it all back together, yes, even trying to put me back together, my relationships back together. So what does it look like for me to work, work in that arena with the whole created thing? What does it mean for us to participate in, in a world that is groaning but expecting new life? I've mentioned uh, a lot of our covenant churches trying to step into these, these really horrific, tragic moments. And actually, was the timing, um, I was going to say timing couldn't be better. It was really good timing for me, but that is terrible in light of all the tragedies, so it's an awkward thing to say. The timing couldn't be better in that just this last week, uh, our, our Covenant Newswire released an article highlighting all of the, uh, the churches, the Covenant churches who have stepped in and it's just a few of them. I mean, there's so many other stories. I want to share a couple of those with you this morning just to say, this is what people are doing to step into the brokenness. This is what people are doing, people like you and me, motivated by their love for Jesus, to step into the brokenness where they're recognizing that the earth is not cooperating. These terrible things have happened in our community. God, why? What do we do now to find that new life on the other side of creation groaning? My friend uh, who preached here back in October, this is John Lemon, pastor at Montecito Covenant Church, standing in front of uh, what used to be a house. You know, this uh, I did not realize how close this mudslide was to their church. I was up just a week or two ago having lunch with John, and I left Montecito Covenant. It's right next to Westmont up on the hill. Made a left to go down to the freeway, down, if you could picture where Coastal Drive is, little markets there in Montecito, little shops and restaurants. And right along the main road heading down the hill, it's just, just devastation. And it's the houses that you pictured when you saw Hurricane Katrina pictures where they, 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 they're marking with the big, you know, the, the, the folks are coming through, National Guard and others, and putting, you know, a big circle that they went through this house. Here's how many people they found inside. Here's a, it's, it's that serious. And John and his staff have been on the front lines with some families that have lost loved ones. 
And John says in this article, I mean, I've talked to him about this, he says it's very interesting. He says in this article that the main thing they're trying to communicate to people is that God is still here. God has not abandoned you. In the article, he says this, Church is an abstract concept to most people, he says. But when disasters of this magnitude overwhelm people, people discover that the church can be a place to go. And I love this line. We tell people we're a safe place where you can fall apart. Again, when these things happen and we say, why? Why did this happen? God, did you do this? People, are you doing this? What do we do? Well, we cry out and then we say, but there's hope. New life is coming, and the church can be a place, can occupy that space to say to people, we're here for you when you're hurting. We're a safe place where you can fall apart. He said for them, the the, the most important thing is that they're listening to the needs of the community. They're just listening. A safe place for people to fall apart. My friend Sarah Robinson is a pastor outside of Orlando in Audubon Park, and uh, when Hurricane Irma hit in September, 400 million, uh, four, uh, sorry, yeah, 4 million, not 400 million, that would be a lot of people, 4 million people lost power. And the church was one of the few buildings in the neighborhood that did have power. So they opened their doors, they let people sleep there, they let people cook their meals there. They let people come and charge their phones and charge their computers, watch movies. In the midst of uh, uh, again, disaster. And saying, God, why is this happening? They said, hey, you can come be at the church. And one of the things that was so interesting that people said is that they kept saying, hey, we're actually talking together as neighbors as a result of this. We're actually eating together as neighbors as a result of this. We don't do this enough, people said. In both, both of these instances and in many others, just to, to conclude... What we see as we look at these broken relationships between the earth and humanity and God is that there's also an opportunity that in light of the tragedy for the church to say, God is still here, we are here, we believe new life is coming. We believe new life is coming. We believe that one day all things will be made new. So we live in this time where creation is groaning. We live in this time where we groan when we see these things. We lament, we cry out to God. And yet we also live in this time where as people of faith, we hold out hope. We hold out hope for our neighbors. We hold out hope for those who have experienced tragic events in this last year. We remind them that in the groaning, in the groaning, that there is hope that all things can be made new. Would you pray with me? God, it's true as we look at the events that have happened in our world, and Lord, I know for many of my friends in this room, they they lived through earthquakes and other tragic events here in, in this community. And Lord, as we're reminded of those things and reminded of, Lord, maybe even the terror that those events brought, we're also reminded that we're here, sitting here today, Lord, and still 
clinging to you, Lord, still in the midst of tragedy, clinging to a hope that you will make all things new. You will make us new, God, but you'll make all things new. God, help us to hold that hope out for our neighbors, our friends, our family members, Lord. Those who in the wake of tragedy are saying, surely you're not here, God, or these things wouldn't happen, Lord. Let us, in spite of those cynical responses, to hold out hope, to hold out faith, to be a listening ear, to be a place where people can fall apart. God, may we in this room, Lord, transform us by the power of your Spirit so we could be safe people where people can fall apart and be honest with us and we can help them hold on to hope. God, thank you for being present in the storms, present in the midst of the tragedy, holding us up when we don't have it all together, reminding us of our hope. Thank you, God, for who you are. And Lord, for all these things that you've created, that they're all good. That was your intention, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand for our closing song.